So when we open the pages of sacred scripture, we find stories of shared experiences. Most of the Bible is narrative. And as narrative, these stories are of people in real places, in real time, in real circumstances. And when we read about how they interact with each other, and when we read how they interact with the circumstances that are challenging them, we are to learn from their experiences, and we are to build up wisdom in our own lives as well. Well, one of the shared experiences that often arises in the scripture is this story of conflict, the story of fighting between human beings. And as we live out our lives, certainly we all come into conflict with other people. And it's also common for those of us that have a particular viewpoint on something to think that we are right and they are wrong. So the story of mankind is the story of conflict and behind every cultural boxing match is a bigger story that I'd like to share with you today as a way of introduction to this series, TKO. I'll mention what TKO stands for. Some of you already know what that means, but I'll introduce that in a second. I want to give you just some introductory thoughts before we come to our topic for this morning. So we take certain things to heart, don't we? We are framed and we are formed by all kinds of things, our family, our personality, our experiences, and so forth. And that shapes not only who we are, but how we look at life, the lens that we use to look at life. And when we choose people that we want to associate with, we usually choose people that are a lot like us, don't we? Because that's who we are most comfortable with. We choose then what we like and what we don't like. I like these people, I don't like these people. And what happens is that gets deeply ingrained inside of us. And as it gets deeply ingrained inside of us, we develop our own kind of belief system. And this belief system is sort of like an invisible force that governs our behavior. So when we say the things that we say or do the things that we do, there are times later in the day or week we go, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And much of it is this invisible force that is inside of us. It's our belief system that affects our decision making. Now when our belief system interacts with other belief systems that are much different, because of different circumstances, different personalities, and so forth, what we find is that there's often a butting of heads. Now this can happen on a personal level, but it can happen on a national and international level as well. What doesn't help is when we turn on the news, we watch news anchors that become actors in this division as well. And certain networks reinforce a particular viewpoint, while another network reinforces a different viewpoint. And what happens is it reinforces our belief system rather than thinking, is there a different way of looking at these topics? Where can we build genuine discussion? And so when we are 
clutching to our belief system and we look to news actors, that's what I want to call them many times, that just reinforce what we already believe, then what happens many times is we don't realize we are being taken. What is happening many times is news actors are really only reinforcing their corporate interests. Because it's always about the money, Lebowski. It's always about the money. What will generate the most money? And you'll see this in a second. Now here's the problem. And here's where religion comes in. All religion tends to think that they need to be the only truth. So religion sometimes develops this belief system and then they use some sacred text. Then you'll usually pull out a few verses here and there out of the text to reinforce that belief system that they are the only ones that got it right. Now, after this has happened for hundreds and hundreds of years, we have hundreds and hundreds of different denominations right within Christian religion itself, let alone other world religions and how we interact with them. Now, when religion gets involved, sometimes what happens is we feel we're fighting for God, and we feel that we have to maintain this system at all cost, and we will even condemn other people. We will even persecute other people who believe differently. And the history of the church often has been when religion gets bad, Wars, persecution, and violence, and injustice, and a denial of rights, and prejudice often comes in as well. And the thing that makes it very, very difficult is that we think we are honoring God in the process by holding on to this one way of looking at something and then condemning everyone else. Well, as we look at what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. So I read earlier the vision of chapter 2 in Ephesians 2 is that all people can become one and uh, there is a, a relationship of brothers and sisters because we are brothers and sisters even if it's not in our immediate family it's in the human family. We are brothers and sisters together. But Paul says a little bit later in that same book the letter of uh, to the Ephesian church, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, a couple of things that's very important to point out here. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Okay, let me ask a question. Do you have flesh and blood? Okay, I do too. You're not my enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it is against certain things, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces. What often happens in the world in which we live is our problem is not always people. It's the systems that are in place that reinforce decisions, okay? So 
People can get along if they can sit across a table and have dinner together, but if they have been so influenced by systems that they see the person across the table as their enemy, well, you're not going to get anywhere. And what Paul is saying as he has this vision of a community that comes together, that is trying to strive for people that are very different to get along with each other, to recognize those systems that hold power over us, to see those who control those systems for profit, and for those who get colonized in the process to keep the system in place. Now right here in Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about things that we can't see, things that are often invisible to us. Rarely do we understand that each and every day that we breathe, we are walking through a world that has certain systems in place. And what happens is this vision gets lost. We forget that Jesus is our peace and he can bring two different types of groups together. He can destroy the barrier. He can bring down the dividing wall of hostility. He can set aside all these minutia of laws and commandments and regulations that we think are so important rather than holding up the great ideal that more important than anything else is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment, Jesus says. And so when we do that, he can bring two people together and create in them a unity and bring peace. Well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? So what happens is we need to fight a good fight. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the connection between the book of Ephesus and 1 Timothy is when Paul gets old, he gets arrested, he is placed in prison, but he feels this city of Ephesus, it's so cosmopolitan, it is so big, it is so important to the region, that he sends a young man, a protege, by the name of Timothy, to the city of Ephesus. And as he sends this young man to this city, he tells Timothy, as Paul's life begins to wind down, eventually he will be martyred, he will be killed. And he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were ma when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight the good fight. Now, the way Paul uses this phrase, the emphasis is on a good fight, it seems. Fight the good fight of faith. And so we take that to heart, and we think that one of the things that we are to do is to knock out our component, right? To knock out our opponent. Now, I wish Paul would have wrote this just a little bit different. That takes some guts, doesn't it? What if he worded this like this? Fight the fight of a good faith. Fight the fight of a good faith. You see, you can fight for either a good faith or a bad faith. And a bad faith that has a good fight in them 
will create conflict and division. And it seems as though our emphasis is always fight the good fight rather than fight the fight of a good faith. So let's talk about that for a few moments today. So I want to talk a little bit about nationalism today. And the way I'm going to do that is I want you to think about a TKO. Does anybody know what TKO stands for? Okay, Dan. No, not, yeah, not total knockout, Pete. Technical knockout. Now, what's the difference? That's, that's right. That's right. So when we have a one-punch mentality, okay, and we get in a fight, if I can just throw the right punch at the right time, I can take that person down. That's not the way a fight usually goes. Well, sometimes. But sometimes what happens is you go the distance in a boxing match, now this picture here of the referee, he's holding up four fingers, right? This guy can't continue. Do you see? He's kind of, he's kind of leaning. This ref will call this fight, not because he has been totally knocked out, but because he's been technically knocked out. There's a big difference. A technical knockout understands that your plan is to go the entire distance, and you're not looking for a one-punch total knockout. What you're doing is you're trying to understand that in any topic of division that we have, usually it takes a long period of time to dialogue with other people, to understand who they are, where they're coming from, and it takes them a long time to understand who we are and where we're coming from and why, okay? And if we don't look at it through a long lens, what happens many times is then there is this wild swinging trying to knock another person out. And that's kind of a tendency that we all have. So when we choose to engage with other people that are not like us, how are we going to fight a good, for a good faith? Not a good fight where I'm going to try to knock somebody out. Well, here's what Paul says. Now, this is a whole different church. So there's another city called Corinth in Greece that he writes two letters to in the New Testament. And this church was known for its division. It was known for its conflict. And he uses this same metaphor of fighting like a boxer. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.26, but I want you to notice something in what he says to the Corinthian congregation. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. I just don't go swinging away. No, now, this is strange. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slip my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Do, you, do any of you find that rather strange? Isn't the focus to be on the other person throwing the strong blow against them? Paul says, no, no, no. I'm not going to swing my 
fists in the air and hit nothing, but I'm first going to strike myself, a blow to my body, and I'm going to make it a slave. What is he saying? He's saying to a group of people that can't get along, look at yourself first. Don't look at the other person first. Where do I come up short? Where am I contributing to this conflict? What is it that I'm doing that is causing the hostility? I call this, what Paul is saying here, kind of the rope-a-dope effect. Have any of you heard of the rope-a-dope? Does anybody remember Muhammad Ali? Okay? One of the greatest boxers of all time. And he had this technique. He was going up against some individuals that were stronger than he is. And it was unlikely that if he went toe-to-toe boxing with them, that he would knock them out. So, Pete, you've heard of it. What did Muhammad Ali do in the rope-a-dope? Exactly right. So the rope-a-dope is, if this is the ring, he would kind of lean against the rope, and he would put up his defense, and he'd let the other person exhaust themselves. And it's then that he started to box, right? And he usually won that boxing match, not because he was stronger, but because he used a different technique than the other boxer. And what was his famous line? Muhammad Ali's famous line was what? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. All right? His purpose was to win the match, but he understood that it would take some rounds that it wasn't going to be something that was going to be solved in the first or second round. So using this metaphor, when we think about how we interact with other people, do we allow ourselves to take some blows on occasion? Right? And it's okay. It's okay. Sometimes we come immediately to our own self-defense when somebody says something or does something that we think is unjust and unfair. But using kind of this technique rather than lashing out and fighting back, if we can kind of cover up for a second and take some of that and build some trust with other people where you really get to the heart of the problem and you can make some advancement in it, we are far better off. So I mentioned earlier during the announcements, we're going to talk about these four topics over the next several weeks. Boy, each one of these topics is like an atomic bomb in our culture, okay? So we're going to navigate it a little bit, and as we navigate it, uh, we're going to kind of keep that rope-a-dope technique in mind, that there will be times that things will be said that we're just going to have to absorb. And what we're going to have to do is allow that to happen so that we can make some headway. So... I want to talk just for a few moments about nationalism. I'm not going to take a lot of time because if you're interested in this topic, that's what we're going to do the next three Wednesday nights. You can look it up on YouTube as we talk a little bit more about this. So in this topic here, what we have is something that all countries do. And that is nationalism. It's not just something in the United States. It's something every country 
does. Nationalism is an ideology that advocates a fusion of a way of life with a particular identity and culture. So remember what I said in the book of Ephesians, there was a division between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. Well, each group felt that they had a better culture. Now think about this for a moment. So the Jewish people go all the way back to Abraham. And over the course of thousands of years, there were many laws that were given, many regulations, many um, uh, different types of ceremonies that they would keep in their worship to God. So all of a sudden they are conquered. And as they are taken into captivity by Babylon, and then by uh, Greece, I mean Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then finally Rome when you get to the New Testament, it seems as though they, they feel that they need to fight because if they're going to hold on to their national identity and culture, then they need to fight these foreign influences upon them. Well, what happens many times is people, and I understand some of this is like patriotism, at least that's the way people think, I'm going to fight because the country that I belong to is the best country in the whole world. That's a, it's, it's a bit patriotic, but it's more nationalistic. Empires have always been using nationalism to control conquered people, which is also called colonialism, for thousands of years. So one nation conquers another nation. And what they do is they say, we're taking away all of your identity, we're going to take away your uh, culture, and we're going to take away your language. And you're going to have to learn ours. Have you ever asked the question, why is the New Testament written in Greek, and it's not written in Hebrew like the Old Testament? It's because the Jewish people were conquered, and then when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, he did a thing called Hellenization. Hellenization is we're going to impose Greek culture on everyone. And they're going to have to learn the Greek language. They're going to have to learn the Greek customs. They're going to have to worship the Greek gods. Well, Alexander the Great wasn't doing anything uh, that was new. If you were to go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, and I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel in the lion's den, right? You're familiar with three friends that Daniel had. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But maybe you don't know the context of why they find themselves deported from their homeland back uh, to the Babylonian uh, capital. Well, here's what happened. There was a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. This king invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, and took all of the elites, or at least the potential elite people, back home, because here's what he was going to do. In chapter 1 of Daniel, it says that he was going to make them learn Babylonian culture, Babylonian language, and then what he wanted to do is put them back into the territory that they came from, where they had been indoctrinated with all this Babylonian culture, and then he could use people of the same nationality to rule the people that they colonized. Does that make sense? Okay. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they are taken to Babylon. And all of a sudden, 
in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're going to learn all of the arts of Babylon. You're going to have all the learning of Babylon and so forth. And Daniel stands up. And he's not only willing to fight the good fight, actually he's willing to fight for a good faith. And if you know the story, the story is... uh, all of the servants bring out this massive amount of delicious food and tells these Jews to eat up. Eat the Babylonian menu, basically. And Daniel says, no, 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 there's things that's on that plate that are forbidden in my culture. You know, the food laws that are in the Old Testament. And he was very faithful in that. And what he desired to do was stay true to the law. So he says, no, I'm not going to eat this food. But he says here, let me and let my friends eat our own menu. Let us eat our own food. Let us keep our own laws. And then you test us. If at the end of a certain amount of time, we are not healthier than the people that are on your uh, menu, then, you know, we'll deal with that then. So for a period of time, they eat kosher. And as they eat kosher, at the end of this time, they come back into Nebuchadnezzar's presence, and they were healthier and more vibrant as young men than those that were living out a Babylonian type of life. And so they not only fought the good fight to keep their culture and to keep their identity, but they also fought a good faith. You don't see Daniel throwing fists at Nebuchadnezzar, at least in chapter 1. A little bit later, when he opens up his window and he wants to keep the practice of praying three times a day, he's arrested. And then the story goes on. He's thrown into a pit with lions and um, God intervenes. And then his three friends are thrown into a furnace. And then when they look into a furnace, they see a fourth person in there with these three men. So the book of Daniel is a fascinating account of how God intervenes as these young men protect their culture, and yet at the same time, they are not individuals that are are taking up weapons, trying to uh, lead a rebellion. They are simply by faith recognizing that a good faith will stand on its own two feet. And I think that's what we have to understand as well. A good faith will stand on its own two feet, and we'll see the benefit of it. So, nationalism is when you think that your nationality, your ethnicity, is the best there is, and everybody should become like you. Well, Daniel shows us that there is a different way to fight this. There's a TKO. Not a knockout, but a technical knockout where over a course of time you show yourself to be true to uh, people and show yourself to be true to God as well. So what is the danger of nationalism? Well, nationalism uh, tends to form in-group and out-group thinking. Are you in or are you out? If you're not in, you're out. If you're not in, you're an enemy. Secondly, nationalism is committed to winning at all costs with power-seeking and superiority as the only real goal, not the common good. So we see systems like apartheid and so forth. 
that had been in place for many, many years that caused a lot of problems. I'll touch upon that a little bit next week when we talk about racism and how this fight for equality is something that has been a long, long uh, process. Number three, nationalism contributes to internal fragmentation that often leads to instability. That's what we are seeing in our country right now. And what's even more amazing to me is not just the divide between Democrats and Republicans. Right now they were trying to choose a new Speaker of the House and it took 15 ballots to get a Speaker of the House and that's within their own party. There's a lot of infighting that's going on all across the board. Number four, a nationalistic mandate will feel entitled to break laws to achieve their goals. In other words, there are certain common laws that each nation agrees to, and yet when there is sometimes people that want to keep a certain uh, objective in place, they will break their own laws so that they can achieve their own goals. And finally, a nationalistic leader sometimes will need to lie and destroy and distort history in order to maintain the illusion of superiority. So come back to Daniel with me. So Nebuchadnezzar, one day, this is in Daniel chapter 4, he goes out onto his rooftop terrace and he goes, look at the great kingdom that I have built. And God says, no. He goes insane for seven years. You can read this. He goes insane for seven years because of this self-grandiosity about who he is and the power that he has and so forth. And the text goes on to say in chapter 4 of Daniel that his sanity did not restore to him until he was willing to acknowledge God as the true and ultimate king over the universe. Okay, a couple more things and then we're done. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, shows the danger of uh, nationality. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. In other words, if you allow that division, if you allow that hatred, if you allow that conflict to continue for too long, it basically is self-imploding. That's my concern about our country right now. It's ready to self-implode because we cannot find ways to talk about important topics. It's just infighting. It's, and it's causing us to look at the people that are not in our group as enemies. So here's what I want to say. If um, you remember, does anybody remember Jeff Foxworthy? You might be a redneck if. Do you remember that stick that he had? You might be a redneck if you're mowing the lawn and you then find your car. You know, different, just silly things like that, right? Well, let's borrow from uh, Jeff Foxworthy for a moment. You might be a nationalist, and next week I'll talk just a little bit more about Christian nationalism, or uh, not next week, uh, on Wednesday, rather, the Wednesday say. You might be a Christian nationalist if you think Americans' founders were all Christians. That's not true. Our founders had a mixture of all kinds of different influences. You had atheists, you had deists, you had Baptists, you had Catholics, 
it, it, it was a, a huge mix of different type of people. But the narrative many times is, no, we're a Christian nation because all of the founders were Christian in the traditional sense. Secondly, you think America is God's chosen nation. God does not favor one nation over another. Did you know that? He doesn't. They are all precious in his eyes. Number three, you might be a nationalist if you think it is wrong to criticize America. A lot of times people think, hey, you're not being a good patriot if you criticize certain things that are wrong in the country. Well, how do you then get further down the line and solve some of your social problems if you don't properly evaluate where you are. And finally, number four, you might be a nationalist if you believe the uh, Declaration of Independence and Constitution are divinely inspired. We, we think that the scriptures are inspired, but our constitution or any constitution of any nation is not a divine script that fell out of heaven. It was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of negotiation there was a lot of give and take, right? That t took some type of constitution or forming of identity uh, to be able to put it, be put in place. So here's what I want to do. At the heart, nationalism puts love of country over love of God and love of neighbor. And all I want to say to you is be careful with that. I'm not telling you not to love your country. Patriotism is about being a good citizen. It's about looking out for the common good of all people. It's putting laws in place that are fair. It's doing those things that are necessary to achieve better living. But love of God and love of neighbor always comes first. So with that in mind, I want to tell you what happens to Jesus. He comes and there were people that wanted to pull him into their side of some of the conflicts that had been happening in the country, and he just refused to allow that to happen. And as he did so, he made enemies. But what he did is he chose to fight for a good faith. How did he do that? He went to the cross. And like the Apostle Paul, he chose to accept the blows in order to achieve a better goal. So we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, I want you to think about as you take the bread and as you take the cup, Jesus willing to lay down his rights to achieve something greater. We call it salvation. To be able to be made right with God and to be made right with each other. And to get into our communion time, I think what we can do is think about the Lord's Prayer for a moment. We're going to say it together, all right? Think about the things you're praying for there. You're praying for things that are a part of the common good for all people. So would you pray it with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
that is a very, uh, it's a very encompassing prayer when you think about people having enough to eat, not trespassing against each other, and forgiving people who have trespassed against us. Think about that. These are all practical things that Jesus asked us to pray for. So we come to the table. And as we come to the table, what we do is we recognize this piece of bread and this cup represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And we take these elements as a way of remembering his death upon the cross, giving his body for a greater vision, letting his blood be shed so that forgiveness could flow. So I'm going to pass these around. You can take a piece of bread and a cup and hold them, please. <clears throat> hold them, please. And then we will take them together, okay?